Welcome back to another episode of the Ninja Nerd Podcast. We are here today, very excited to talk about pneumonia. It's going to be a really big topic, but it's a, such an important topic to know because it's so common. Before we get started, though, guys, like always, please go onto our website, ninjanerd.org, grab some, grab your membership, get some notes, illustrations, a lot more content to help master these topics and really focus on what we're going to be doing today, which is pneumonia. So, Zach, any thoughts here? What, what, what do they have to know about pneumonia? Oh, man, pneumonia is a pretty awesome topic. It's definitely very common, something that you guys will definitely experience in whatever field of medicine that you go into. So I think it's a really good one to, to talk about today. How, how about you, Rob? How are you feeling today, brother? I'm feeling like garbage. I'm, <laughs> I've hit an all-time low. I have poison ivy covering my entire body. Every crevice. <laughs> it, it's, it's horrible. I get it really bad. I, of course, I was doing weeding, you know, doing some some yard work, some landscaping, trees, weeds. Uh, elbow deep in this stuff. <laughs> and naturally, my wife, she's totally fine. Not a bump on her body. Doesn't get poisoned. Me, on the other hand, I'm in like severe condition. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't or, even on steroids, everything. Yeah, I'm on steroids. I, I, I'm on a prednisone taper. I, I couldn't even open up my eyeball. Apparently, I itched my eye. Uh, so it's been a rough couple days I, for me. I'm so sorry, man. Hey, Hopefully, man, this podcast will take your mind off of it for oh, a little bit. We'll you know what? Fun. One thing I love doing is learning a little bit more about these 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 topics and subjects. It does help my get my mind off of this a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But um, throughout the whole thing, I just want to picture myself bathing in a tub of hydrocortisone. <laughs> That, that just sounds so good to me. But hey, work. there's work to be done. I'm really excited right, about look. pneumonia, and we're going to learn a lot today. So, Zach, let's go ahead and start off by explaining the pathophysiology behind pneumonia. Absolutely. So, um, pneumonia definitely, I think, can be like easily looked at in a couple different ways. So, one of the big concepts behind this is it's really micro-aspiration. So, little kind of like bacteria within particular particles of like airborne particles, uh, maybe some kind of particles that actually may be a part of our normal flora within the like oral cavity or pharynx might be aspirated into the airway or gastric pathogens. So sometimes somebody actually like vomits or, you know, they have a lot of reflux and some of that actual gastric contents maybe actually go retrograde right into their airway. The last one and probably the least common way that someone can also develop an infection is maybe not just from aspiration of oral pharyngeal airborne or gastric pathogen. It can also be hematogenous. So it spreads from the blood to the lungs. But either way, that's the basic concept. Now, the way that I think most people may question is, is not everybody micro aspirates these types of secretions. What puts a patient at risk for micro aspirating particular, you know, um, oral pharyngeal secretions, gastric secretions, or maybe even the hematogenous way that they can get this, it's important to understand. So there's natural reflexes that our body has to prevent these pathogens from going down our airway. One is that if an, an actual kind of like aspirated material tries to go into the airway, the natural type of reaction that we have is a cough or gag reflex to prevent that from moving down into the airway. Now, if somebody for some reason has a depressed cough or gag reflex or difficulty in being able to allow for that reflex to occur, maybe due to some type of CNS disease or maybe some type of CNS depression from like, you know, some type of sedative cause like alcohol, uh, opioid overdose or some type of benzodiazepine overdose, whatever that may be, they lose that cough gag reflex and then allows for that aspirated material to run right into the airway. The other one is it could be an impaired mucociliary clearance. So we naturally have cilia and mucus, and that's supposed to beat any of those particles upward so that we can either cough it or spit it out. But if it isn't able to be beaten up because it gets stuck in that part, then it can cause inflammation and infection. So think about things that destroy that, like COPD. And patients who have COPD, they have a lot of inflammation. They're smokers, so that kind of rips away their natural cilia. Other diseases like bronchiectasis, where there's lots and lots of mucus that you can't even move the mucus along because it's so thick. Or in elderly individuals who also kind of lose their cilia as well. 
The other one is that it could be, again, hematogenous. So this is not too common, but you can see it in IV drug abusers. So in IV drug abusers where they actually you know, are sharing dirty needles, some of that staphylococcus aureus can get into the bloodstream, move into their right heart, get pumped out via their right heart into the pulmonary circulation, and then from there infect some of the alveoli. So you can potentially see some type of pneumonia as well as an associated endocarditis um, with kind of a hematogenous spread. The last one is that let's say that generally we have, again, our cough gag reflex to prevent pathogens. We have our mucociliary clearance to prevent pathogens from kind of causing damage or getting into the airway. The last one is if the pathogen does happen to make it down into the bronchioles and the alveoli, we have an immune system that's supposed to fight it off. So we have macrophages and lymphocytes that are supposed to come to the area and clear that all out. What if you're immunosuppressed and you aren't able to clear those types of pathogens that you're normally commonly exposed to? So that's another thing is that patients who are immunosuppressed, so they're elderly, they're HIV AIDS, they're on immunosuppressive medications, they're status post transplant, whatever it may be, those patients are at risk from being able to fight the infection and they're at high risk for a lot of nasty pathogens. So I think that's the basic concept of the pathophys behind pneumonia, Rob. All right. Pathophys beautifully explained. I think the, the real big thing to tackle here is how do we classify pneumonia? It's such a big topic. Let's figure out a way to kind of make this a little bit easier to digest. And let's do that in three ways here. We're going to first talk about the microbes that are associated with pneumonia, acquisition of pneumonia, and then location of pneumonia. Kind of go by that stepwise fashion to kind of break it all down. Yeah, so I think that's a really great way of looking at some microbes that are kind of responsible for causing pneumonia is a big, big one that you may see on your exams. So I, I like to look at this as in the sense of bacterial, viral, and then like your fungal. Okay, so bacterial, there's two particular types. So there's gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria that you want to know about. The first one is the gram-positive, and this is definitely a huge one. I'd actually want you guys to really remember this because it's the most common cause of community-acquired pneumonia, especially in elderly individuals, like greater than 65 years of age or they live in a nursing home. It's streptococcus pneumonia. So streptococcus pneumonia is by far going to be the most common cause of community-acquired pneumonia. And those individuals, greater than 65, elderly individuals, were especially living in like a nursing facility of some kind. The next one is strepto, I'm sorry, Staphylococcus aureus. So Staphylococcus aureus, we already talked about this. You can see that in those IV drug abusers via the hematogenous spread. But another way is it is a part of kind of our oral pharyngeal flora. So if for whatever reason someone develops influenza, depresses their immune system a little bit, and then after they get influenza, then the Staphylococcus aureus can just really cause havoc and wreak havoc on the lungs. So you can see Staph aureus post-influenza, don't forget that, as well as uh, in patients who are under IV drug abuse. The other ones are gram-negative. So gram-negative, I want you to think about what's called homophilus influenza, sometimes referred to as H-flu, and then Merexella cateralis. So these are the second most common cause of community-acquired pneumonia. And you'll see these in patients who have an underlying obstructive lung disease. So because they have some type of alteration in their mucociliary clearance, that's a problem for them. And so you'll see that these are very, very common pathogens in those patients with like COPD, bronchiectasis, or cystic fibrosis, big, big things to think about there. Another really nasty gram negative is Klebsiella, and Klebsiella is a really, really big one that's a part of our GIT. And so you really want to think about this in patients who have aspirated. So think about those patients who are alcoholics, who are on benzos, who are on opioids. They're, you know, utilizing them a little bit too much and they have an overdose or they have a CNS disease or some type of problem where they have maybe a stroke or they have a seizure and they aspirate some of their actual gastric contents. Klebsiella is a really, really big one to think about in those situations. 
The other one is Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and this one is a nasty, nasty one. So you really want to be careful for this one, especially in those immunocompromised individuals. So this is the one that you'll see in those immunosuppressed individuals. So HIV, AIDS, they just had a transplant. They're on immunosuppressive therapy of some kind. They're, at, they're exposed to being at risk for this nasty pathogen. The other one is that bronchiectasis. Um, in patients who have cystic fibrosis, they are just harbingers of colon, or colonizers of Pseudomonas. And so in these situations, if they develop an exacerbation, especially in cystic fibrosis, they can definitely have a lot of pseudomonas. So watch out for pseudo and immunosuppressed patients, as well as those who have bronchiectasis, specifically secondary to cystic fibrosis. I think the next one that we'll move on to besides the gram positive and gram negative is there's another category that we call atypical pathogens. So these are really interesting in the sense that you have two, or three of them that I want you guys to remember. Mycoplasma, chlamydia, and Legionella. We are, I'm going to abbreviate these as MCL. These are your classic atypical pathogens. So mycoplasma is the one that you're going to want to remember in young, healthy individuals who are living in kind of close proximity or close quarters with a lot of other younger individuals. Think about like dormitories. Think about like boot camps and things like that. It's a very common one that you'll see in young, healthy individuals. You don't commonly see pneumonia in otherwise healthy individuals except for this type of pneumonia. And some degree, chlamydia as well. Legion Legionella is the one that I do want you guys to remember as well, because this one is actually a nasty atypical pathogen that you see in high-risk individuals. And what do I mean? You see this in those who are immunosuppressed, so have HIV, their status post-transplant, they're on immunosuppressants. You also can see it in elderly and those who smoke, okay? So you see it in the immunocompromised, and you see it in the problems where they have an issue with their mucociliary apparatus from elderly and smoking. The big thing with this one is think about this on your exams. Legionella, think about contaminated water sources. So I'm talking like, you know, an AC. Sometimes that can actually spew Legionella. Hot tubs, pool, showers. Those are all potential nituses of Legionella. So watch out for that one. The next category that I want us to think about besides bacteria, so we talked about gram-positive, gram-negative, and then atypical pathogens. The next thing is viral. Viral is not too common, but it is something to think about. For pneumonia, especially influenza, I'd say it's one of the most common types of like viral pneumonia that you can see in adults. It's a severe type though. And another one, maybe like cytomegalovirus or CMV, you'll definitely see this in those immunosuppressed individuals. All right, so we talked about bacterial. We talked about viral. I think the last one to understand is fungal. Now, fungal, the big one that I really want you to remember is PJP, so pneumocystic gerevichi pneumonia. This is really, really nasty fungal pneumonia that you can see in those who are immunocompromised, specifically patients who have HIV AIDS with a CD4 count. Don't forget this, guys, less than 200. They have that less than 200. That puts them at very high risk for PJP. Be on high alert if they have that. The other three are endemic fungi. And so the way that they may ask you this on the exam to pick out which one it is, is based upon the location. So uh, the patient was, you know, maybe backpacking in southwestern California and they were when they were backpacking and hiking, they came back and they had symptoms of pneumonia. Well, you want to think about coccidiomycosis. So that's a common one in southwestern California from the soil and dust exposure. The other one is histoplasmosis. So usually they use that classic, like, you know, someone was spelunking, they were looking in bat caves or things like that, and they were exposed to some of the bat droppings. And so that's a big one for histoplasmosis, or they say they were in the Ohio, Mississippi, Mississippi River Valley. There was a big one for histo. And the last one is blastomycosis. So think about this for some patient being like in Maine or Vermont or something like that. And some of the soil and dust exposure from that in like the eastern parts of the United States, they're definitely exposed to what's called blastomycosis. So that's the big things that I want you to think about for the microbial type, with most emphasis being on the bacterial with gram positive, strep pneumo, and staph aureus. Second most common would be the homophilus influenza, Merexella cateralis. Don't forget about the pseudo, which is a really big one. And then don't forget mycoplasma in those atypical states. And then PJP and CD4 is less than 200. 
Another way that we can classify pneumonia based besides microbial types of pneumonia is we can use this term CAP, community acquired pneumonia, HAP, hospital acquired pneumonia, and then a subtype of HAP called ventilator associated pneumonia. So let's talk about those. So CAP is community acquired pneumonia. And we define this, I like to define it as like a community onset. So in other words, the onset of pneumonia occurred uh, usually in the community or less than two days being in the hospital. So that's the way I look at it. So an onset of pneumonia that developed in the community or they had been in the hospital and they developed pneumonia at least less than two days being in the hospital. That's the big one. And what is the most common type of pathogen that I told you guys? Streptococcus pneumonia. What's the second one? Haemophilus influenza and Marexella catarralis. So don't forget those. Now, HAP, hospital-acquired pneumonia, this is a pneumonia that's been acquired or the onset of the symptoms of pneumonia developed greater than two days in the hospital. So CAP, community to less than two days in the hospital. HAP, pneumonia onset greater than two days in the hospital. The reason why it's important to be able to differentiate between HAP and CAP is the microbes or bugs change. So in the community, it's strep pneumo, haemophilus, morexella. In the hospital, you're now scared about multi-drug-resistant, nasty bacteria such as MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Those are the two bugs that you have a lot of fear of and the differentiation between CAP and HAP. Now, one of the types of HAP that we see a lot, especially in the critical care world, is ventilator-associated pneumonia. It's a type of HAP, most common type usually. And this is basically when a patient who has been in the hospital for more than two days and they have an endotracheal tube down their airway. So they've been in the hospital, they've been intubated for more than two days in the hospital, and now they're at risk for MRSA and for Pseudomonas. So you really want to watch out for those two bugs in that situation. There's one other way that we can describe the acquisition of pneumonia, and it can be described as aspiration. So sometimes we can say, yes, the patient may have CAP, they may have HAP. Sometimes you can even say that they have an aspiration pneumonia. And so again, with aspiration pneumonia, this is usually you aspirate like gastric contents, oral pharyngeal contents, or some type of material into the airway. And I think one of the big things to remember for aspiration is you can have an outpatient or you can have an inpatient type. Outpatient, you want to watch out for those nasty anaerobes. Okay. So watch out for anaerobic infections because it increases the risk of a lung abscess or an empyema. Uh, also watch out for Staphylococcus aureus. For inpatient, you're being scared that they may have a gram-negative rod like Klebsiella or Pseudomonas. So again, when they're in the hospital, they're at risk for nasty bugs that they can aspirate, especially Pseudomonas and Kleb. For outpatient, they're at less risk for that, more anaerobes from gastric contents as well as Staphylococcus aureus. Okay, so we talked about the microbial way that we can describe pneumonia, the acquisition way that we can describe pneumonia. There's one more, which is the location of pneumonia, which we utilize during looking at chest x-rays. So when we look at a chest x-ray, we can see based upon where there's a consolidation or opacity or an area that looks abnormal on the chest x-ray and doesn't look like normal lung parenchyma. And the way that we define that is it can be involving the bronchi and some of the alveoli. And this is called bronchopneumonia. So it's a bilateral patchy consolidations or opacities on the chest x-ray. And usually the most common pathogens for this is strep pneumonia, staph aureus, haemophilus influenza, klebsiella. The other one is lobar pneumonia. This is a really socked in like lobar pneumonia. So like a right lower lobe is socked up or the left lower lobe is socked up. So there's all completely consolidated and opacified in that entire lobe. This is very classic for streptococcus pneumonia. So you'll see this more likely in the community, whereas you see more like bronchopneumonia, more likely in the inpatient settings. 
The other one is interstitial pneumonia. And this one is really kind of like these really tiny, thin, reticular, reticulonodular opacities that you'll see kind of spanning from the hilum all the way outwards towards the periphery. And this is an interstitial pneumonia. And I really don't want you guys to forget the three most common pathogens in interstitial pneumonia. It's primarily mycoplasma, chlamydia, and legionella. So MCL, and then some degree viruses. All right, Zach, I sure hope you don't mind if I go ahead and summarize the short novel you just spewed yeah. off. And I don't think, I think our, our listeners would, would really appreciate that as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Please do, Robert. All right, thank you. So let's start off first with the mic. We'll go with the same classification. So we'll start with microbes. So we know, first off, the highlights here. Strep pneumo, that's going to be their most common cause of community-associated pneumonia. Staphylococcus aureus, think about post-influenza and IV drug abusers. MRSA. Big. This is MRSA's huge in hospital-acquired pneumonia. Nasty bug right there. We then have H-flu and Marixella. Think about COPD. Pseudomonas. Think about cystic fibrosis in immunosuppressed individuals. This is another one. Big in hospital-acquired pneumonia. Pseudo. Big time. Mycoplasma. You're thinking of those young, healthy individuals, close quarters, boot camp, a college dormitory, something like that. Legionella. Think about contaminated water sources. And then the big one for the fungal here, the PJP, think about an individual with, who has AIDS in a CD count less than 200. Next category, next classification is acquisition. We're talking either between community-associated or hospital-associated pneumonia. So with CAP, we have a community onset less than two days in the hospital. Excuse me, community onset or less than two days in the hospital. Hospital-acquired pneumonia, Onset greater than two days in the hospital. And then ventilator-associated pneumonia is when you have the endotracheal tube down your airway. Location, lobar pneumonia, lobe-affected, think strep pneumo. Bronchopneumonia, bronchi is affected. And then with interstitial, think about the interstitial spaces affected. We're talking about those atypical microbes, MCL. Man, that was good. I like that. I think that you did way better than I did, my friend. I don't, I don't think so. It's, it's a lot of information, so hey, maybe it will help. Absolutely. So, Zach, our patient has got some concerning features for pneumonia. What would that look like for our listeners? Absolutely. So, pneumonia is... Sometimes it may seem like it's really easy to diagnose, but I think that sometimes when you think about pneumonia, there is a very broad differential. But I think of the way that the boards will present it for you may be pretty classic or typical pneumonia, which they're going to present because you have like this nasty infection, right? Involving the lung parenchyma. It can cause a kind of like a little cytokine storm to really kind of activate the hypothalamus and increase your body temperature. So you definitely want to look for like fevers or rigors. That's a big one. The other thing is that it can really kind of cause a lot of like pus. If you want to think about it, inflammatory exudate and pus to accumulate within the the actual alveoli and the alveoli are responsible for gas exchange. So if those are kind of like filled up with pus and, and kind of like exudative material, you're going to allow for less oxygen to move from the alveoli into the blood because it's got all that pus material that's blocking it and then less CO2 to be able to get out of the blood and into the lung and then be exhaled. So it can cause some degree of hypoxemia and maybe some degree of CO2 retention, but you probably kind of counteract that CO2 retention with breathing faster, which is another symptom that they have. Now, if they do have like, you know, this hypoxemia due to a VQ mismatch, or if it's really, really bad pneumonia, sometimes it can even be a complete shunt. Um, but either way, they have hypoxemia. 
What happens is the actual hypoxemia activates those chemoreceptors. Chemoreceptors tell your medulla to breathe faster. So you send more impulses to your diaphragm, to your intercostals to breathe faster and breathe deeper. And so they may have some degree of tachypnea and they may actually work harder to breathe. So you want to look for any evidence of like accessory muscle use as well. Um, the other thing is that whenever you develop that reflex like tachypnea, you can also develop a reflex tachycardia as well. So watch for any degree of tachycardia in these patients. So again, fever, rigors, hypoxemia due to VQ mismatch. If it's really bad, you can shunt, um, which means that you basically have almost no gas exchange and that causes severe hypoxemia, refractory to oxygen. So because of the VQ mismatch or the shunt, they may develop a reflex tachypnea, increased work of breathing, and maybe even tachycardia. The other thing is that whenever you inflame the lung parenchyma, guess what's a part of that? The visceral pleura. And if you inflame the visceral pleura, that's actually supplied by somatic nerves. And so whenever you take a breath in, it actually inflames that pleura, sends information via the somatic nerves to your you know, central nervous system and tells you, hey, you're in a lot of pain there, buddy. And so that causes this kind of like what's called pleuritic chest pain, which is pain due to, you know, usually the inflammation of the pleura whenever the patient is breathing. So it's very important to be able to ask, what kind of chest pain do you have? Oh, it hurts when I'm breathing. Oh, okay. That could be pleuritic chest pain. The other thing I would also tell you guys to watch out for with these patients is any, any evidence of consolidated lung tissue on your physical exam. So you go, you take your stethoscope, you put it on the chest, you listen. When you listen, what you want to hear for is very loud breath sounds that sometimes is due to air flooding through a bronchi and then immediately hitting a consolidated area. And so what happens is the breath sounds are going to be loudest usually because right before they enter into that consolidation, they just hit a boom, hit a consolidated area. And so sometimes you can hear this bronchial breath sounds. The other thing is that if you go ahead and you had percuss over that, a lot of consolidated tissue causes a dullness to percussion. Also, if you really kind of put your hypothene or eminence over the area where the consolidation is and you have them say 9999, you'll feel less vibrations on your hypothene or eminence. I'm sorry, increased vibrations on your hypothene or eminence because consolidated tissue, which is containing fluid and pus, will actually conduct sound a lot better. So you have an increased tactile frimitus. You'd also have a lot of these other special tests like an increased egophony. Whenever they say E, you can clearly hear A. They may have an increased whispered pectiloquy. So you have them like whisper like 99. You'll be able to hear that very clearly. Um, or if you have them do bronchophony, which is maybe you're going to have them say something like normal, you'll be able to hear it very clearly. Um, so those are kind of the things that you can see with these patients. So look for any evidence of consolidated lung. So bronchial breath sounds, dullness to percussion, increased tactile frimitus, and positive bronchophony, egophony, and whispered pectiloquy. The last thing that I would also urge to watch out for with these patients, especially if the patient starts becoming a little bit septic, is watching out for any kind of decreased perfusion to the brain leading to an altered mental status. So sometimes infections can really alter patients, especially if they're elderly. So look for any evidence of kind of an altered mental status, confusion, delirium, anything like that. That may also be another sign of pneumonia. Now, the other types of pneumonia, so this is your typical, okay? So this is the ones that I'm talking about with the gram positive, gram negative, maybe even the PJP, things of that nature. For atypical, which we're talking about for MCL and some of the viruses, those are less conspicuous. They're kind of like less obvious. They're more insidious. So you want to look for like maybe low-grade fevers, maybe a dry cough, but really look for symptoms of upper respiratory tract infection. So look for headaches, sore throat, congestion, earaches. Earaches is a really big one, especially if they have what's called um, bullous meningitis. 
So sometimes in mycoplasma, they can have like these like bullet lesions on their eardrum and it can really cause a lot of pain. So look in their ear as well. If you have any concern, um, you might see that they also may have a lot of myalgias, arthralgias, and sometimes watch out for any nausea, vomiting and diarrhea, especially with Legionella. So that's another big one. So I think that's the big things for typical and atypical. Now, what you want to watch out for is the complications that can come from pneumonia. So obviously the typical way is the classic way, right? So the fevers, hypoxemia, tachycardia, tachypnea, uh, maybe a nasty kind of purulent cough, Pleuritic chest pain, evidence of consolidation, altermental. Atypical, look for the upper respiratory tract symptoms, sore throat, headache, congestion, earaches, uh, you know, sore muscles, sore joints. Complications that you can see from this, one is that whenever you have an infection of the lung tissue, you can cause a lot of increased capillary permeability in the, near the pleura and cause a lot of fluid to accumulate there. And this can be called a paranemonic effusion. Now, sometimes some of the bacteria can seed into that paranemonic effusion and become loculated and infected, and that can become an empyema. So watch out for that as well. The other thing is that sometimes with like really nasty anaerobes and Klebsiella and even Staphylococcus aureus, it can actually wall itself off. And when it walls itself off in the lung parenchyma, it can create this nasty like little sac or cavity where all the pus and uh, na- nasty exudated material sit. And that's called a lung abscess. So watch out for lung abscesses as well. And then the other two things that I think are really, really bad is that if somebody gets really, really bad pneumonia and they start involving multiple alveoli, they start really destroying the capillary alveolar interface it can definitely lead to ARDS. So watch out for that as a potential complication from severe pneumonia. And then lastly, if the bacteria seeds into the bloodstream and starts causing hypotension and shock, then you have to watch out for sepsis and respectively septic shock. So these are some big kind of complications I would watch out for, as well as the classic symptomatology that you may see, Rob. All right, Zach. So I got a I got a scenario for you here. I think you might just like it. Okay, hit me. All right. So we have a patient. They come into your, your ICU. They're hacking mayonnaise-looking sputum. <laughs> they are so febrile they could cook an egg on their forehead. <laughs> They're breathing so fast and deep they look like they just saw their celebrity crush. And you're watching that O2 sat drop and plummet like my bank account on Black Friday. <laughs> and this patient's they're, they're in a rough state right now. They're, yeah, they're not doing yeah. too good. No. So can I just send this patient home with some Flonase? Call it a day. Absolutely, man. That's that's definitely that. Yeah. Oh, get a, get a prescription Flonase. Send them home. They're Boom. Fine. Done. Call it a day. <laughs> in all seriousness, how do I how do I go about diagnosing this patient with pneumonia? They're they're really in rough shape. What do I do to really get them on the up and up and improve their quality of life and get them on their way? Yeah, that's a great question. So if I had a patient like this, definitely that's a concerning patient to see. So I think once you have a patient who's coming in with those classic features, the typical pneumonia, right? So they have that purulent cough. They have that maybe degree of shortness of breath. They're tachypnic. They're working hard to breathe. You know, they're febrile. Um, you also definitely see that they're having maybe some degree of hypoxemia, all of these classic features of pneumonia. And then you go and you listen to them and you hear evidence of consolidated lung tissue, et cetera. I think it's important to start your process off by just getting some labs and a chest x-ray. That kind of would be the first way that I would start that. But let's say that we start off with labs. First thing I'm going to get a CBC. Why? CBC might show an increasing white count. So if I have a patient who is febrile, they have evidence of consolidation in their lungs, and they also have a leukocytosis with maybe even a left shift, like lots of band cells. That's concerning for pneumonia. The other thing is I check a CMP. Now, a CMP really is not going to help you to diagnose pneumonia, which is really, really important here. What it's going to do is look for concerning features of sepsis. So pneumonia is a very, very common cause of sepsis, Rob, really common. And so I really like to get a CMP to look for two things. One, make sure that they don't have an acute kidney injury, because sometimes when patients get septic-y and they start having a little bit of decreased perfusion to their organs, they start seeing target organ like malperfusion and organ damage. So I want to look for any evidence of acute kidney injury. So do they have any 
a bump in their BUN, a bump in their creatinine. That's one thing. I also look for any kind of effect on the LFTs too. So sometimes increasing LFTs and hyponatremia, that can point to a very specific pathogen on your boards, which is Legionelle. So don't forget that one. Increasing LFTs and hyponatremia with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, patients who are immunosuppressed, elderly smokers, think about Legionella, especially with the contaminated water sources like Rob said. So I'll start off with the CBC. I'll get a CMP to risk stratify them to look for any kidney injury or liver injury. The next thing is I'll get blood cultures. The reason why is my big concern is sepsis. I want to make sure that the blood, the bacteria that's in their lungs didn't spread to their blood. So I get blood cultures. Okay. So this is going to help me to look for any kind of like potential pathogen that may be responsible. Also, remember I told you, uh, what's the one pathogen that from IV drug abuse can get into the blood, cause endocarditis and then cause pneumonia? Staphylococcus aureus. So if I have a concern for IV drug abuse, definitely want to look for staph aureus there as well. So CBC, look for the white count. CMP to risk stratify, look for acute kidney injury, look for increasing LFTs. Blood cultures to rule out sepsis. Sputum cultures is really going to be helpful because if I have a high degree of suspicion that this patient patient has pneumonia, I'm going to start them on broad spectrum antibiotics or depending upon how sick they are, I might kind of treat what I think is the likely pathogen. And we'll talk about how we risk stratify these patients, but I'm going to start them off on antibiotics. If I get a culture from their sputum, I might be able to figure out what specific bug is the cause. And then from there, narrow my antibiotics down. But this is way more common in patients who are usually intubated. So usually sputum cultures is more common for for the patients that we have who are, we're concerned that they have a ventilator associated pneumonia or maybe a community onset pneumonia, but they've only been intubated for about a day or two, not greater than two days. So that'd be the way that I would start that off. So CBC, CMP, blood cultures, sputum cultures. Now for those guys out there listening for the board exams, you also want to consider if you have a patient who you're thinking has an atypical pneumonia, especially mycoplasma. So they have the upper respiratory tract symptoms, sore throat, headache. You know, they have congestion. They have myalgias, arthralgias, and the bullous meningitis. You can actually check for what's called a serum cold agglutinins. And that might be positive in these patients who have mycoplasma pneumonia. The other thing I really like to do is I like to send off some urinary antigens, especially when a patient's coming in. I'll send off what's called a strep pneumonia and a lesionella urinary antigens because those pathogens can actually kind of be present and some of their proteins can actually be present in the urine. So I'll send that off as well. And then lastly, I send off a respiratory viral panel just to make sure I'm not missing like an underlying virus. Like do they have rip roaring influenza, CMV, or the new one, Rob, SARS-CoV-2. So I definitely like to send that off as well. So those are kind of my big first steps. The key ones though, CBC, that's huge, looking for a white count, looking for a left shift. CMP, looking for particularly an acute kidney injury and increasing LFTs. Blood, sputum cultures to look for any evidence of infection. Blood for sepsis, sputum more for the ventilator patients. Serum cold agglutinins, if I'm concerned for mycoplasma, urinary antigens, if I'm looking for strep pneumo and legionella, and then a respiratory viral panel to make sure I'm not missing something there, Okay. The next thing is I'll get some imaging. I'll start off with a chest x-ray. Chest x-ray is going to be your best friend here. And what you're going to be looking for is that classic thing that Rob talked to us about, which is the low bar versus the bronco versus the interstitial pneumonia. So look for bronco pneumonia, the patchy consolidations bilaterally, and that's going to be the big thing. Low bar, a socked in opacity in one of the lobes. Interstitial pneumonia, you're going to see the particular nodular opacities that are spreading all the way throughout the lung parenchyma. And look for any complications. Do I see an effusion? Do I see an empyema? Do I see lung abscess? Those are all big things. If you get a patient who your chest x-ray looks completely normal, but they have the symptoms that are concerning for pneumonia, don't say they don't have pneumonia. 
consider a CT scan. If you definitely have a high degree of suspicion, you might be missing some of those bases of the lungs and not seeing some of the bases because they're hidden. If you get a good PA and lateral chest x-ray, you might be good to go. But I think it's really important if you have those really sick patients who all you can get is an AP chest x-ray, I would consider getting a CT scan. CT scans can be really, really good if the chest x-ray is inconclusive or you've started them on antibiotics and they're not getting any better or they're immunosuppressed and you're looking for something weird like a TB or a fungi or something nasty like that. So I would definitely consider getting a CT scan as well. Um, the other thing for imaging, I really would only do this if you're really like concerned that the patient has like PGP or some type of fungal pneumonia or tuberculosis. You could do like a bronchoscopy. I think it's a really cool way you stick a camera down the uh, down the bronchi and pull the pus out from there. So maybe helpful in kind of being able to like determine what the pathogen is, or you're really trying to look for something weird like a PJP pneumonia or like a you know a tuberculosis a tuberculosis or another kind of like nasty fungal pneumonia. I think that's not a bad one, like aspergillus as well. But that's how it start off with. So I'd say the key things to remember is a CBC, CMP, sputum, blood cultures, urinary antigens like Legionella and strep pneumonia, respiratory viral panel, and then again, you can also consider the serum colteglutinins for mycoplasma. Get a chest x-ray, CT if, you, if it's inconclusive, but you still have a high degree of suspicion, or you're looking for complications, and then a bronch if you really want to go ahead and go get that pus out from the airway. The next thing I would also do is when I have a patient like Rob presented, I'm kind of nervous about that patient. Okay. So that's a patient that I probably wouldn't just say, okay, here's a pack of azithromycin. See you later and send them home. I'm going to potentially monitor them because I'm a little bit concerned that they may have some worsening symptoms and have a chance to deteriorate and I won't be able to monitor them. So it's important that whenever you're going through your diagnostics and you're getting all these labs and these imaging and you're looking at the patient and examining the patient, you think about, is this a patient that I can send home or is this a patient I can send to the ward to kind of be observed for the next 24, 48 hours? Or is this a patient that I have to send to the ICU immediately. And that's really, really important. There's a lot of scores out there. There's the pulmonary, like there's the PSI score. There's the uh, CURB 65 score. There's all these different types of scoring systems. The CURB 65 is the most commonly utilized one that you'll see on the test. So I think it's important to think about this one. And so how we kind of risk stratify and determine the risk of mortality for the patient. So if they have a high mortality, I'm not going to send them home with a pack of azithromycin or Flonase, like Rob said. I'm going to, I'm going to send them to the ICU maybe to get a little bit more further monitoring. So Curb 65 looks like this. So it's a mnemonic. So curb 65. So C in the curb is for confusion. So does the patient have any confusion, altered mental status, delirium? That's concerning, especially in the elderly patients who I'm concerned that pneumonia has led to sepsis. Uremia. Uremia is that thing that I told you. It's an increase in their BUN. That's a concerning potential thing for I'm not perfusing those kidneys or I'm having some type of problem with the kidneys. Maybe the patient's dehydrated. Maybe they're having an issue with their kidneys because they're septic. So look for uremia, particularly greater than 20. Respiratory rate. I, I can't stress this enough. If I, if, if a patient from the, let's say that one of the ED docs calls up and says, Hey, I got a patient respiratory rates like 48. Oh, send them up. That's a huge, huge thing for me. So respiratory rate is definitely one of the most concerning signs of deterioration because it shows me the risk that the patient will actually tucker out, respiratory failure develop, and then a completely like diaphragm, intercostal muscles fatigue. So it's a really, really important thing to look at the respiratory rate. So again, confusion, especially is big in the elderly, uremia, potential evidence of end organ damage because of sepsis, respiratory rate greater than 30 tells me that there is a risk that this patient will eventually tucker out and fail. And BP, so I'm looking for evidence of sepsis, septic shock specifically. Is the systolic blood pressure less than 90? Is the diastolic blood pressure less than 60? Those are concerning features. So again, confusion, uremia greater than 20, respiratory rate greater than 30, systolic less than 90, diastolic less than 60. And the last thing is if they're 65 years of age or older, because they're at higher risk of really nasty complications from pneumonia. If I add all of these up, so let's say that a patient had confusion, 
They had an increase in their BUN, greater than 20. The respiratory rate was 32, but their BP was completely normal and they were 66 years old. So that's one, two, three, four. That's four. Guess what? That patient's going to the ICU. Okay. So that's how we look at these curb scores. So if, for example, a patient was like zero to one, that's a really low risk. You can probably send those patient outpatient with some antibiotics and send them home. For two, I would admit those patients to the ward, not to the ICU, but to the floor to be observed for at least 24, 48 hours to make sure that they don't develop any complications that they need to be upgraded or downgraded. The next thing is if a patient has a three plus CURB-65 score, you should really send those patients to the ICU because they have a really high mortality rate and you don't want to miss them kind of like deteriorating. So those are the kind of things that I would utilize as my labs, imaging, and kind of like really utilization of hospitalization criteria. All right. Great. So next up on the docket, instead of just telling the patient, hey, go rub some dirt on it or, or, or just come on, just go sweat it out. Please tell me how to determine the antibiotic regimen. Like you said, not just doing broad spectrum, but also kind of getting it down to a more targeted uh, antibiotic. And then how do we figure out with those antibiotics, how do we also provide some supportive care to really help this patient out? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one of the things is, again, use that CURB-65 score. So if I have zero to one, it's outpatient. So if it's an outpatient kind of study, I mean, if it's an outpatient, you know, person who has pneumonia, how do I treat them? The, the, the basic concept is antibiotics, right? So we have two options here. I can give them an, a macrolide like azithromycin, or I can do something like doxycycline for about five to seven days. Okay. If they've had antibiotics within the past 90 days, or if they have any kind of like really like severe comorbidities, like they have congestive heart failure, they have an underlying lung disease, something that puts them at high risk of deteriorating, I might up the coverage to fluoroquinolones. So uh, kind of a monotherapy fluoroquinolone may be an option here. Preferably macrolide doxycycline will be your preferred. And then second line will be the respiratory fluoroquinolone if they've had antibiotics in the past like 90 days or they have other like severe comorbidities. If the score is between, uh, like, you know, you have a score of two, so you're admitting this patient to the floor, then I'm going to have them in the category of a community-acquired pneumonia, not outpatient, now it's non-ICU, so ward, I guess you could say. For this patient, I would still do a macrolide or doxycycline, one of the two, but I would add on some beta-lactam coverage. And so I would put them on something like ceftriaxone. That's kind of my preferred one. You can also use other ones like Augmentin or Unison, things of that nature. But generally, it's macrolide or doxycycline plus a beta-lactam. Preferably, I like a third-generation cephalosporin, and if I don't use that one, I use either an amino penicillin like Unison or Augmentin. If that is not the option that I'm going to choose, you can also choose a respiratory fluoroquinolone. So Levaquin, uh, Levofloxacin is one option or Moxifloxacin is another one that you can consider. But those would be the two. I prefer not to do fluoroquinolones. I think there's too many like, you know, negative, con- negative connotations from this drug. So I prefer to always kind of go with a macrolide or doxy plus a beta-lactam. And then for a community-acquired outpatient, I prefer macrolide or doxy. Um, the next one is if a patient has a score of three plus, then I'm going to admit them to the ICU. If that's the case for community-acquired pneumonia in the ICU, then I'm going to do something like a beta-lactam plus a macrolide. So it's the same thing like we talked about with the community-acquired pneumonia non-ICU. Beta-lactam plus a macrolide, I just don't use doxycycline. Um, and then the second idea is if I'm not going to do a beta-lactam and macrolide, then I'll do beta-lactam and a respiratory fluoroquinolone. The whole concept behind all of these is you're covering for the most common bugs. So if you put someone on macrolide or doxy or fluoroquinolone or adding on a beta-lactam, you're really covering for things like Haemophilus influenza. You're covering for things like Morexella cataralysis, 
especially with those beta-lactams. And then for the fluoroquinolones, the macrolides, you're also covering for, believe it or not, those atypicals as well. So the mycoplasma, the chlamydia, the legionella are great ones. And then also with these, you're kind of getting a little, some coverage of that streptococcus pneumonia as well. So that's why that these are the most common antibiotics that we'll utilize here. Now, here's where it kind of differentiates. I have a patient who came into the hospital. They got admitted. Maybe it wasn't even for pneumonia. Uh, maybe it was something else. All right. Maybe they got, they had a big stroke, right? Big stroke. Um, they had to be intubated for a particular reason to, for airway protection. And then while they're intubated, they've been intubated for like, let's say four days, they start having increasing sputum within their airway. They start having fevers. They start having hypoxemia. They start having, you know, a lot of like nasty coughing and is issues like that. Maybe their chest x-ray shows an infiltrate. Maybe they're having increasing oxygen requirements, etc. The whole concept that I'm concerned that they have pneumonia, but they've been in the hospital now for more than two days. Okay. And so it can't be community onset pneumonia anymore. This is a hospital like, right? It's likely a VAP. Uh, so either way, if a patient is intubated or and they're in the hospital for more than two days and they start developing symptoms of pneumonia, now I'm concerned that the bug has changed and it's no longer community. It's now hospital acquired pneumonia for hospital acquired pneumonia. What did I tell you were the two most common bugs, MRSA and pseudomonas. When MRSA is the concern in these patients, we have to start a different type of antibiotic regimen. So oftentimes we do vancomycin or linazolid. And then for the pseudomonas, we have a couple different options. Usually it's going to be piperacillin tazobactam, also known as Zosin. Um, another one would be cefepime, or another option would be something like a aminoglycoside. However, I strongly urge you to avoid aminoglycosides due to nephrotoxicity and ototoxicity as well. But that's the concept that we would go with in a patient who is on these particular types of antibiotics. We would generally do these for about five to seven days. Now, here's what I would add on another thing. Just because a patient who is in the hospital, has pneumonia, it doesn't mean that it's only MRSA, it doesn't mean that it's only pseudomonas. You can still have an increased risk when a patient is intubated. Guess what else they're at risk for? There is potential cooling devices that are running through there. There are risks for atypicals like Legionella. So if that's the case, I would consider things like a respiratory fluoroquinolone or azithromycin if I do have concerns for a atypical pathogen. And the last one is if they're immunocompromised and they have a CD4 count less than 200, what am I covering for? PJP pneumonia. For that one, we give them Bactrim. Okay. So don't forget to add those on in those particular situations. Now, the last one I absolutely hate because aspiration pneumonia, everybody thinks, oh, it's anaerobes. You got to cover them with, you know, anaerobic you know, uh, antibiotics. So you got to put them on Clinda or you got to put them on, you know, metronidazole. That's not necessarily true. Um, so, so the lung is naturally filled with oxygen. And so anaerobes aren't going to very do very well in a very a well aerated lung. So because of that, it's very unlikely that when a patient has aspiration pneumonia, you you need to treat them with, you know, anaerobic coverage. When I would say anaerobic coverage would be necessary is if they aspirated. And then when they aspirated some of the anaerobes, they created a lung abscess or an empyema. If that's the case and they do have a lung abscess or an empyema, then you can consider adding on things like clindamycin or augmentin or metronidazole. Otherwise, treat an aspiration pneumonia like you would a community-acquired or a hospital-acquired pneumonia. Unless they have an abscess or an empyema, you're not really going to be adding on these kind of like anaerobic coverage, really. I think that that's important to remember. But in all reality, that's what sometimes the literature will say. The last thing is while these antibiotics are 
cooking and kind of kicking and, you know, you know, you're putting that bug juice on that pneumonia. You also want to be able to support the patient's underlying oxygenation. So it's important to be able to remember how do we treat oxygenation? Generally for these patients, obviously you think, oh, we got to intubate them. No, 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 no. Don't, don't intubate these patients right away. Sometimes they can do good and actually get through without having to intubate them. It really kind of depends upon the patient. So what I prefer to do for these patients is while I'm treating them with antibiotics, I want to just support their lungs. And so what I'll do is, is I'll put them on something called high flow nasal cannula, also known as OptiFlow, and I'll set their kind of flow rate pretty high. I'll give them about 50, 60 liters of flow, and I'll adjust their FiO2 to their SpO2 requirement or their SpO2 number, so their saturation of oxygen. So I'll have them go up on the FiO2. I'll tell my respiratory therapist to increase the FiO2 to keep like an SpO2 goal of greater than so-and-so, and oftentimes greater than 92%, 94% may be the goal. Now, as I'm examining the patient, as the antibiotics are kicking in, as the patient is hopefully improving, then we can avoid intubating the patient and just keep them on OptiFlow. If, for whatever reason, the patient's respiratory rate keeps climbing, their work of breathing keeps worsening, their hypoxemia continues to worsen despite increasing the OptiFlow requirements, and the patient is deteriorating, they're losing their actual mental status, then the tides turn to now having to intubate the patient for refractory hypoxemia or for airway protection. So in those situations, that's when we would go to intubating the patient and then kind of dealing with that there. Now, that's kind of beyond the scope of this lecture, so we're not going to talk about intubation here, but that's kind of what we would talk about. The other thing I think is really, really important to help your patient is that you're going to have potentially a lot of secretions and mucus within their airways. So encouraging them to kind of get and move some of those actual secretions out is very, very huge. And that's why OptiFlow is really, really good because it also helps with mucokinesis. So I will I kind of have you know the nurses at bedside trying to suction the patient, telling the patient to actually suction themselves. I'll do a lot of like expectorants, like, you know, Robitussin or Glyphenosin, maybe like particular nebulizing treatments that contain 3% saline or maybe other like things like mucomist to help to really clear up some of those secretions and thin them out. And then also like percussion therapy. So putting a vest on the patient, beating their chest up a little bit, that might be things that are really helpful to kind of clear those secretions upwards to provide that supportive care. All right. I, th I think that's it. That's our, our episode on pneumonia. What a perfect ep I mean, that was awesome. Thank you for that information, Zach. I thought that was uh Really great to hear. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And I hope you guys did like this podcast. I think it's a really cool topic. It's something that you definitely want to be able to be aware of to spread knowledge about. And again, be able to just whenever this kind of situation comes about, know how to be able to identify it, know how to be able to treat that and how to be able to stand by your patient and just advocate for them for the best that you possibly can. But um, as always, engineers, I thank you guys for listening to this podcast. And uh, as always, until next time. Mm -hmm.